Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 29. We are hearing from the Lucan Psalter translation. Give glory to Adonai, you heavenly court. Give Adonai strength and glory. Give forth the glory that God's name deserves and worship Adonai in the splendor of holiness. The voice of Adonai resounds over the waters. The glory of God thunders over the raging sea. God's voice is powerful. God's voice is full of majesty. The voice of Adonai snaps the cedars, shatters the cedars of Lebanon. It makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of Adonai strikes with bolts of lightning. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness, the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of God twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in God's temple, all cry glory. Adonai sits in judgment over the flood. Adonai is its ruler forever. Give strength to your people, Adonai. Bless your people with peace. This is the story of faith and faithful struggle. Thanks be to God. The song is called Awe and Wonder, and it's from Psalm 29. It's an interesting psalm. It seems to describe God's voice as coming in the midst of a storm, a huge storm, a violent storm, in the midst of earthquake and fire and wind, stuff that is destroying the wilderness, destroying forests. And God's presence is right there. Maybe God is the storm in a way. And the psalm says we are in awe and wonder at this glory. When's the last time you were in awe? Or let's wonder together, what is awe? What is that experience like? It seems to me it starts with something that's unknown, something that we don't really understand, but that we are fascinated with. Something, as the text says, something glorious. But not only are we drawn to it, and might, maybe we feel joyful, but at the same time, fearful. There's a, a deep sense of respect with whatever we're witnessing. I wish for us many experiences of awe and wonder.
Let us be in a spirit of prayer. Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And may we, like Samuel, cry out and say, Speak, Lord, for we are listening. Amen. We are continuing to affirm that God is holding your life as we continue our journey of assurance in this new year. Today is the second week of our dive into the beauty of the Psalms, the songs of praise and lament found near the center of your Bible. The repetition in this Psalm, the voice of Adonai, a name which means great Lord and King, points to this literature's musical origins as an earthly and a heavenly call for us to worship the one who is in all things, including the storms of life. The waters depicted in this psalm are a good connection to the blessing over the water in which we rehearse the salvation of God through biblical references to water, culminating in the water at baptism, 
from the waters of creation to Noah and the flood to the crossing of the Red Sea, the baptism of Jesus, and the storms in Paul's shipwreck. The Bible has much to say about the awe-filled wonders that ancient people saw in nature. Waters and our life of faith can be stormy at times, but God is there. Jerome Creech describes Psalm 29 as a hymn that praises God as ruler of the universe. Like other hymns and many prayers, the psalm begins with a call to worship and then identifies divine qualities and attributes that justify that praise. Unlike most hymns, however, Psalm 29 calls heavenly beings, not humans, to worship. Based on the context, heavenly beings does not even refer to angels in this circumstance, but may rather refer to the gods of the Canaanite pantheon. The interpretation arises from the fact that Psalm 29 is an adaptation of a Canaanite hymn that praised Baal as the great storm god. Baal was a fertility deity, thought to bring rain that caused crops to flourish. And so Psalm 29 declares that Israel's God, the one true God that we call Yahweh, is the true master of the storm and the rain and the only one that has power to help human beings. The Lord God also is profoundly different from Baal in at least two ways. First, Baal was the same substance as the elements he ruled over. He was husband to the earth. And the rain represented his seed that fertilized it. By contrast, the Lord God is separate from creation. And though the creation gives evidence of his might, second, while Baal mainly provided material wealth, the Lord mainly seeks peace, shalom, which includes justice and righteousness. Thus, the Lord's action for humankind ties directly to the expectations for humans to treat each other rightly. James Mays reminds us that in many places in the scripture, God is the shelter from that storm. And in Psalm 29, the Holy One brings the storm and how. God is in the thunder in the fire, in the earthquake, in the floods, and God's voice is shaking the desert and snapping trees like twigs. Even the famous cedars of Lebanon are wiped out. But it sounds much more like shock and awe than awe and wonder. What's with all the violence? That old Canaanite myth about Baal and the thunder god who tamed the watery chaos and its wild sea monster to make creation is rebooted here. But it's the god of Israel who not only tames the chaos, but it's the holy one who controls it in the first place, who stills the storm, bringing strength and shalom, peace and prosperity to the people. The point is, whether there's an abusing storm or quiet skies, God's got this. God is the storm. God is in the calm. God is in the delightful parts of life, as well as the painful seasons. Seven times the voice of the Lord is referred to here, with the thunderstorm helping us visualize the awesome power of God's creating, 
organizing and sustaining. There's a surprise ending after this storm in the psalm where God strips the forests bare. After the destructive power of the psalm, of the storm, Psalm 29 does not end with a final blow that destroys the world, although we might think that's where it's headed. Instead, it ends with peace. So we can ask, is Psalm 29 about a life of trust? Sometimes it feels like there's been violence unleashed in our world. It feels out of control, like the road we're on is not leading anywhere good, like we need help. In the psalm narrative of God bringing storms and peace, we have a frame of the presence around the picture of our lives, whatever the circumstance. The psalm says, God is here. And Paul says it differently in the New Testament, but it's a similar tone. In the short view, it seems impossible. This is not how the world is supposed to be, right? Look how messed up the world is. The long view, however, in theological terms, this is eschatology, is plain in the biblical tradition. God's got this. It's going to be all right. You know, in the end, beyond our personal preferences, better than our best plans, surpassing humans' capacity to figure things out for ourselves, there's a slow and wonderful curve of evolution toward justice and community and goodness that is unfolding on a scale that none of us can even imagine. It's what Matthew's story of Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven. It's hidden in everything, but hard to see, and that's why it's a life of trust. It's probably good that we're not in charge of that. It's good that we are not in control of the world. It's good that we don't have eyes to see the big picture. But those psalms, they pulse with the possibilities of a life of trust. What would genuine trust feel like for you, for us here at Wesley? The mystic Julian of Norwich lived around the 4th century in Norwich, England, during the time of the plague. Amid the turmoil at that time, she became deathly ill. And she wrote, even in the midst of dire hardship, all is well. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. What would it be like to truly feel trust resonate within us as we move forward? As we make choices, like whatever we choose, we can follow through boldly, knowing, feeling, it'll be all right. You know, in the scope of eternity, we don't do it alone. We don't get it all at once. And like everything, it takes practice. And that's good, too. So now we've explored what the text meant to those who lived it, and we've explored what God's doing in the world through the psalmist's lyrical description. So now let's think about what it means in our lives and how we live them. These psalms are songs of praise of God who deserves our awe and wonder and delight in all that God has done for and through us, creating, sustaining, and loving us. And yet this world, especially these days, has this sense of entitlement, criticism, complaint. 
Drivers getting angry because someone turned unexpectedly. Participants in a meeting angrily whipping out Robert's rules or some bylaw to chastise the other participants. There are rules, after all. There are expected ways that things will go. And when things don't go our way, too often we criticize our neighbor. We will, why me, expecting things to flow smoothly because of the rules of the road, the this or that, the up or down, the to or fro of life. Why are we so prone to complain? Sure, there are psalms of lament, and I encourage people in pastoral care to share their fears and frustrations and even anger at God. But we are repeatedly told not to judge in Scripture, and I truly think that that complaining and criticizing comes from a place of judging each other. Instead of sharing God's grace with each other, I truly think that judging is where we get into trouble. She's gained weight. He's wearing a toupee. Things should be this way or that because that's the way it used to be, and I liked it, darn it. We set impossible standards and set ourselves up for upset when we decide that life is binary, that is either good or bad. But if life teaches us anything, it is that life is not good or bad. My friend Layla's little seven-month-old boy was very sick this week. I couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. He was testing negative for everything. And at seven months old, you know that he relied completely on my friend. And she took him to doctor after doctor after doctor, and they couldn't figure it out. And he had a horrible fever and couldn't breathe at all. So finally in the hospital, they diagnosed him with RSV, and he declined and declined, and they sent him to Boston Children's Hospital, and he was in such a state. But over the course of the week, friends have been praying with Layla, and we've been acknowledging God's goodness and all that God creates, this child himself, the skill of the doctors, the compassion of the nurses, the desire of the scientists to cure these diseases. And so he improved. And all of her friends just poured out our love and thanks for this wonderful miracle that occurred. God truly deserves our awe for the incredible grace that was lavished on that little family. God deserves our wonder for the enormous grace of the person who lets go of their preconceived notions and chooses relationship over rules. God deserves our prayers for working in our lives so that the motorist who might have been upset for being cut off instead smiled and waved, understanding that each of us makes mistakes, each of us has hard days and needs a smile of forgiveness. That amazing grace bestowed upon us and modeled for us to emulate is why we praise this awesome God. And that's what we're doing in worship. Worship in the time of COVID is so hard. We are stripped of so many of our precious symbols and rituals, but worship at its core is praising God with awe and wonder. And we can still do that, even without all those trappings. 
in genuine heartfelt worship, we express our awe and wonder of God's character, God's voice that thunders over the sounds of the raging storm, over the sounds of the raging storm of criticism and the raging storm of COVID. God is powerful and full of majesty. God's beautiful, comforting, grace-filled voice that is described in scripture as making Lebanon and us joyfully skipping like a calf. God is holding our life. Give strength to your people, Adonai. Bless your people with peace. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Amen.